Hello and welcome to the third episode of Ah Now. I'm your host, David Morris. Thank you to everybody who's been listening in to the first two episodes about Brazil and about education and Edward Colston and all the crazy shit that's been going on in the world. This week, we're going to be focusing on the concept of social discourse and how difficult it's been in the last four or five years or so to engage in meaningful conversation online and how the ramifications of that difficult polarization of ideas online has transcended into real life. That being said, you know, we'd always want you to join in the conversation and you can do by sending us a message, a voice message on anchor.fm forward slash now, as well as following us on Facebook and Twitter at now podcast. I'm really chuffed to be joined by Dr. Dario Daenerys, who is the principal lecturer in contemporary screen media at the University of Brighton a good friend, and he's also the co-host of the Cinematologist podcast. Because last week we did a podcast episode and I was interviewing John Whitehead and he was the former principal of Colson Girls School and he actually right. fought for a name change back in 2017. Um, and he's a historian as well. And he was kind of chuckling away at the fact that this statue was pulled down. Um and then over the last two weeks or so, you, I've just been reading constantly about BBC pulling Little Britain off iPlayer and then Faulty Towers, Gone with the Winds. Um, and I started thinking about Tropical Thunder. And then I started to think about other films like Short Circuit, mm. uh, all the like old Holiday Inn, White Christmas, like those classics. Every film ever made, essentially. Yeah. <laughs> so like... <laughs> I just thought I'd be really intrigued to hear your opinion on it about like all the taking down of this media. Cause obviously we both have taught, you I mean, you're still teaching screen media. Um, mm. Is there a point where you can actually use any historical references <laughs> without offending somebody? Well, this is the, this is the, the thing, isn't it? I mean, it, I think there is a slight difference between um, statues that are physically there celebrating a life uh, or a contribution to historical legacy in with regards to a town or a region or a nation. It's a physical presence that is that you cannot sort of you cannot move around. I mean, you could walk down a different street, but it's it's actually physically you know representing something that um, is, you know, basically in stone. And you don't have an option to switch off or yeah. turn on like you do with 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 TV. But they're, but they're both monuments to culture, aren't they? And the problem for me is not individual statues or, or monuments. It's what's the criteria for banning. So if you look closely at anything or everything, as we've said, you're going to reveal problematic elements of it. And the decisions and the social context by which anything gets made or memorialized or, or represented is very much anchored within, you know, a particular historical social situation. And it's the same when you tear something down. Yeah. So you're constantly working through culture and you're constantly working through society and identity and what things are sanctified, what are the values of a particular given time and place. So, you know, it's very difficult 
to to have a criteria that is fi- is fixed in stone. So now I have got no love. Don't get me wrong of of uh, any particular statue that's related to a particular person, but I never I didn't know who Colson was. Yeah, I before didn't. the other day. So I'm I've been more educated in terms of it being taken down in the last couple of weeks. Now the thing is. It's where do, where where do the boundaries of that? If you have a criteria of these these things are allowed to be in public and sanctify a public way of thinking, then where's the line drawn? So if if we if we start at the the British Empire, for example, it, you know a more broad perspective around someone like like Colson, then you're going to have to take down an awful lot. Yeah. So is it more about is is the problem really that we're not educated enough in our own history? To be able to look at a monument of Colson and say, "Oh, there's Colson. I know who he is, and I know what he represented, and therefore, you know, I can make my own decision in my mind about, you know, the good or bad of that person and what he represented in terms of Bristol, in terms of British history." Because um, I mean, the rebuke to this is that is that racism is abhorrent. In all its forms, or there are things that are so abhorrent that are, you know, terrible, evil in every single circumstances. But then, you 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 have to you have to have an agreement on what constitutes racism, and that's where, you know, it, it becomes more difficult because, and we can get into the into more discussions about where we see the 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 boundaries of what is acceptable and what is not. I mean, I think with with things like. Little Britain and Faulty Towers. You're, you're ostensibly asking what you're saying is with taking stuff down or banning stuff or censoring stuff is that the public or individuals or the public at large don't have the mental capacity to be able to process that. And I think that's that's problematic. So we're essentially saying we're not educated enough. We're, we're cultural dupes, if you want to use that. You know, yeah. the Frankfurt School term, we just sit there with like dribble coming down our faces going, oh yeah, I believe that. No, we don't. We're active. We're act- we actively engage with culture and society around us. So do you I think, think, it, do you think is- it comes from a bit of a dictation from, from power to say you should be offended by this or you should not be offended by this? Well, there's the, there's the paternalistic aspect of it, which is, you know, the state sanctions how we how we think or, or feel, or, you know, obviously if you're going to more autocratic regimes, but you could even lodge that at something like the BBC. That's why the BBC is so difficult to, to run because you're going to upset everybody because it is, it is a sort of benchmark of cultural identity in a way that is quite unique. I think in, you know, other countries do have national channels and what have you, but the, the BBC was always sort of a, uh, the denominator of what British cultural identity was in many in many mm. ways. So there's that side of it, but also there's the sense in which we're, we're getting into now, which is really problematic. That if you don't hold certain opinions, and you don't, it's not even just about holding certain opinions. If you don't articulate certain opinions in the right way, then your your voice, your uh, your relationship to 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 politics you you are held as though you are fundamentally problematic yourself you know what yeah. i mean it's very quick people are very quick to kind of judge people as having bad faith automatically rather than thinking oh if somebody said something here that they i disagree with or i'm offended by i wonder why they they've said it in that way or do they really think about 
the world in that way. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm, there, there are people who would, you know, uh, they they would represent views that we would find problematic and therefore we find those people problematic. But I think we're in a culture now where it's very difficult to occupy a space where you're you're having a a dialogue of critical thinking and it's not anything that you could be say could could be taken as an offensive term and therefore you are you are trying to um you you have an agenda behind that that yeah. that, that needs to be called out and i think that that is quite problematic and you see that a lot more with like social media like you use twitter a lot i use facebook probably a bit more than twitter i tried to use twitter but i can't deal with it it's just too uh over overbearing um mm. But like what most of our communication comes through body language. So like the whole context of how somebody is saying something when it's written in black and white on a, on a social media feed, people jump on those things and completely dismiss them or shut them down. And there's almost like this inability to engage in an actual conversation that would actually help like social structures move forward. Um, oh, yeah. Whereas like, the idea of having an in-person conversation, you know, you're forced to butt heads at that person. You're forced to listen to them and hear them out for the most part. Mm. Um, and it, it kind of brought me into that Pew Research Center uh, study that you sent me a link to. And I'm going to put all the links into the podcast uh, episode description mm. so people can see where, you know, we were looking at when we we're talking about these issues. But this concept of spiral of silence um, and the kind of clumping together of opinions that social media kind of drives you one way or another way, and it kind of removes the conversation for for moderate for moderates or moderated conversation. Um, do you think that's had any kind of direct impact on politics? Because one of the weird things as well is that has the creation of social media and how we use social media to discuss heavy topics like racism or politics has the way people use it impacted politics or has the political establishment manipulated us into using it a particular way um i wanted to see what your thoughts were on that yeah god there's a lot to lot to kind of unpack there the um well i think you know when you say politics i think it's it it you need to separate party politics from kind of political economy and the way that we the way that knowledge is now organized because of the internet i think that the and those two things overlap don't don't get me wrong i mean we can see with what is going on with social media and the way that our our time to start with but then the way that we the way that organize knowledge is organized as a weapon and, and communications now is the tool by which politics operates under we can see how how that has led to i don't i don't even want to say unintended consequences but unanticipated consequences but they you know if if you look at the the ways in which um politicians are working with organizations that are trying to use these tools in the very minute complex ways in order to direct the way that we think or the way that we act particularly when it comes to elections i think that's had a it has had a a big effect um I, th- I mean, one of the things for me was when was when the last election occurred, 
And it just it's just brought home for me that Twitter is not the world. Twitter is not a public sphere. It's a very specific demographic of people who use it. And yeah, and there are clusters of different types of Twitter. You know, there's a group who talk about politics, there's groups who talk about uh, film or whatever other subject you might yeah. have. You know, you have the film Twitter hashtag and all that, all that kind of thing. And I think the difficulty is that you, it is a way of siloing you into specific tribes. And, you know, all I ever saw on, on social media was how terrible and awful the Tories are because I'm in that political bubble. Yeah. And then they won by an 80, you know, an 80 seat majority in the election. And, and then it becomes, you know, one of the things that you realize, I mean, talking about the, the culture of silencing, I mean, I, I made quite a lot of commentary on, on Twitter politically, but I'm always very careful in the way that I do it because, you know, that the, we're in this position where the left will attack it, its itself because there's there's um, tribes within tribes. So there's the there's a sort of Corbynite faction of the of the left who hate the Blairite faction of the left. They won't even see them as the left. They'd see them as the right. Mm. And I think it's it, it, what's really interesting is the way that the, the the left and right speak to each other is indicative of this. So the right uses free speech as a weapon uh, to critique calls for measured language. You know, the, the famous phrase is political correctness gone mad, isn't it? Yeah. Whereas the left sees any speech that is a critique of their position, values, or beliefs as part of that former right-wing project, well, yeah. what I've just said. So even me on the left, I could say something that may chime with you know a way of thinking that may be slightly more associated with the right and suddenly i'm i'm a fascist hitler <laughs> you know what i mean there's no yeah. it, it, you go from that position to and so it's a little bit like what you say that the ability to be able to to work through problems is is much more difficult i think because of the way social media operates structurally and because it's it's textual based and it's a lot of it is, you know, completely anonymous, really. It's such a, it, and that in itself is such a severe polarization, that way of, of kind of critical thinking. Yeah. Um, and it's almost as if the right side of the political landscape don't give a fuck about what they're saying or how they're saying it. They're just going to say it and you're either going to like it or you're not. And they don't really care yeah. that much no. about how they're upsetting everybody else. But that directness, Mm. appeals to people who are who are yeah. kind of drowning in this yeah. myriad of, of social media discussion and then but, when, but, like, but the, sorry go on no no i was just going to say then the problem is the problem is anybody who want who wants to think through or even talk about a what is considered a right-wing idea can't do that with any legitimacy anymore and the same goes for anybody who wants to talk about a left-wing idea then they're suddenly, you know, miles far on the left, you're a cultural Marxist over here, or you're a fascist on the right. It's very quickly that we jump to the extremes, which means it's very difficult to have a, a you know, a, a conversation that works through those ideas. Yeah. And I think a really good example as well, you talked about the last election. For me, it was uh, Brexit. And I remember like on the news and you'd see these stories about young members of families being ousted and not lo mm -hmm. no longer talking to their parents or their grandparents because they decided to take the conversation offline around the yeah, dinner yeah, yeah. table 
Yeah. And they found that there was such a severe polarization within the household that yeah, like yeah, yeah. family relationships broke down. Yeah. I mean, I think this is where you can't, it, it becomes difficult to blame things on, on social media. I think social media is a, is an amplification or an exacerbation of a lot of the, the, the polarization that, that you're talking about. And the, these polarizations happening everywhere and they settle on, you know, they're settling on particular political moments. It's amazing to see how sort of generationally the Brexit, you know, um, thing is organized. I mean, it's going to be interesting going forward how long COVID lasts and whether attitudes to COVID start to coalesce around generational aspects in a slightly different way, you know what I mean? Because if you look at the death rates... It's almost already... I mean, I was was reading this piece the other day um, about millennials and Gen Zers like hating each other yeah 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 um and obviously they formed such a huge part of the conversation five years ago around like around brexit and and kind of going through that process and it's kind of hitting on what you're saying this kind of divide to the left and everybody kind of turning on each other like gen zers are fed up waiting on millennials and vice versa yeah um which i find um it's it's very it's very difficult to comprehend that this breakdown yeah. in communication on one side of the argument is basically uh, it's self-deprecation to a degree and means that mm. no progress is made in, in conversation. Um, and and it's, also, it's also the fact that it's, it seems to be more and more difficult for people to hold opposing arguments in their head at the same time. And in fact, I don't even mean opposing arguments, but the idea that something can be, something can be correct in two different ways that that don't fit a neat political agenda. Like say, so say for for example, around Jeremy Corbyn, for example, is it true to say that he was vilified because of a structural problem in the, in the, in the political establishment of the UK that cuts across the way that left-wing ideas are talked about in the media, particularly because we've got a a hugely right-wing print media, which is still very powerful, no matter what you say about online. And the way that that those ideas, and particularly somebody like Jeremy Corbyn as a persona, is is talked about by other politicians, is that true that he he was handicapped by that, and that may have changed public views in ways that you know, were undermining his election. And at the same time, he's an inept leader who didn't know how to deal with the media in, in ways that would have been advantageous to him. He, he basically stopped talking to the media. And when he did go on the media, he looked like a truculent, irritated child. And yeah. his, his whole team around him didn't know how to manage the situation in that, that way. Now, are those two things, could they both be right, even that, though... If you where you position yourself in e, from either opinion would demarcate where your political loyalties lie. Yeah, let's say because I mean, me was, saying, sorry, go ahead. No, I mean it was a, it was basically a two pronged approach that annihilated the the entire concept of 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 his ideas. Mm. <laughs> yeah, it was. Uh, I mean, you look back at it now and you start reading. I was reading the. Um, the report that came out from the Labour Party and the people involved on their side of it, um, the, the, the structure of it was made so easy for um, for that attack to happen on both sides. 
but yeah, I understand what you're saying about how you you know to hold the opposing views in in one's head, mm. um, especially at that time. I think it's easier in retrospect because yeah. hindsight's a oh, bit. Oh yeah, you right? know, without a doubt. Yeah, and <laughs> um, so it's, yeah, it's really everything's always easy in re- everything's always easy in retrospect, isn't it? You know. <laughs> well, I was w- wondering how that approach to thinking has trickled down into into teaching as well. Not that I want to talk about education too much, but mm-hmm. um, like I found that in my few years of of teaching um, at at university level, the delicacy at which you had to handle basic what I thought were basic common sensual aspects of of social structure so I I remember having to intervene and do a sex education class to a bunch of 18 19 year olds because of how the majority of uh, male uh, class members were treating female class members Mm. and I was just wondering what your experience of uh, treading the line of what's PC and what's not PC in an educational environment and how it's impacting the younger people that you're teaching? I, I try as much as I can to say that all opinions are on the table, but those opinions have to be articulated in a ra- in a rational, you know, evidence-based way. If if possible. I mean, yeah. I know obviously students don't bring evidence with them to back up their opinions, but I'm really, I'm really against this idea of I feel it. So therefore it's true. And and, it, and it's not that I don't think, you know, people's subjective opinions don't have value, but it's, it's getting to the point where you can, you can ask a student or a group of students, you know, so, so why, where, where does that come from? Why do you think that opinion you know what I mean, and, and working through where where the where the possible flaws or gaps in that in any particular idea is, and I think that that you know that that's probably comes from my sort of uh, philosophical approach to to teaching cinema and 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 in, interrogating ideas and this kind of thing. Um, I think o- over my years of of doing this, I mean, I I, I don't see it quite as. Um, quite as much as a breakdown in the university system you know the idea that 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 universities are no longer a space for you know rigorous intellectual thought is as bad i I mean i I do think you know in america it seems to be a lot uh, it seems to be a lot more of this this idea of of universities as a as a a safe space in which i learn about my own identity rather than you know places of where your actual thinking should be tested and you should be made to feel uncomfortable it's it's really unusual because that that type of culture i was more familiar with in like primary school as an example and yet you see you see evidence of it like you said in the u.s system like i was reading this this piece about a professor at harvard law teaching about rape yeah. And the students campaigned for her to be unable to use the terms violate and rape when teaching rape law. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you, you kind of made me think, oh my God, we're, we're, we're teaching students to be unable to even represent yeah. the very thing they're studying. They're meant to be experts in it. And they're, they're yeah. going to be incapable of even discussing it in social forms. I mean, 
I, it's I think pathological we are almost. <laughs> yeah, it, well, I think it's, it, it is. We are in a culture where confirmation of one's opinions is happening everywhere. You know what I mean? It's everything is, we're talking about the ecosystems of social media. If you're brought up within that, and, you know, I've read sort of articles about uh, helicopter parenting. I mean, it's now it's called bulldozer parenting, where yeah. parents bulldoze their, the path for their students. Yeah, their kids do well and stuff like this. But I think the big impact that that has is on resilience. I mean, that's the one thing I've noticed that both in terms of mental health, but also just in terms of being able to process criticism. Mm. And when I say criticism, like, you know, constructive feedback on work is what I'm talking about, not this was shit. You know, it was like, okay, you've done this. That was my approach. Yeah, exactly. You know, but... (laughs) You know, it's it's like I, th- I think there is a move, and again, you know, we are we, we can't generalize. We can't say all students, obviously, but I think there is a, a sort of move to where there is a mentality of I am criti- and uh, maybe you you feel the same thing. Filmmaking is now not really about okay, I'm inspired by these sets of films or these filmmakers, and I want to kind of. Um, create my own aesthetic voice, you know what I mean? If it, there's no sort of grandeur around that anymore about filmmaking for most students. I think it is, I want to express my own inner feelings and thoughts and and film is the medium that I'm doing that in. And therefore, any criticism that I get is invalid because it doesn't, it doesn't um, reflect my internal subjectivity. Yeah. You know what I mean? So it's very difficult to, to sort of, if somebody makes a film that is about an experience that they had, what tends to happen is because the the focus is on ideology rather than aesthetics, it's like you can't criticize the, 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 the subjective feeling that someone has gone through in a life when they might have had, you know, whatever, if it might be a traumatic experience, let's say, or just, you know, an event that happened in their life. It's very difficult to say, oh, well, you know, the way you've articulated that is not very good because yeah. it's, their, it's their life. Do you know what I mean? And even yeah. then when you say, oh, you know, the lighting is bad here, the, the stuff is bad there, then that's kind of put to one side because it's my, you know, this is my feeling. This is my experience. What, what do you see as a mechanism or a tool that could be used in a better way or a more creative way to help engage younger people and the older generation to, to kind of forge together and actually have a proper fucking conversation. Well, I mean, I don't think it's young and old. I think that, I think it is, you know, it's any, any opposing tribes that you can think of. And I mean, it can be class, it can be race, it can be whatever. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm not, I'm tribe is a really terrible word, but I'm using it in a sort of sociological sense. You know what I mean? Don't get me wrong on that. Um, that you know, it, it's very difficult now because I think if we're if we're sort of talking about social media and the creation of these ecosystems of of personal connection that we that we have, I think the difficulty is that you don't. It's not that you even just want to you won't engage with an, an oppositional viewpoint. It's actually that 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 oppositional viewpoint does not have any validity to even exist. That's that's a real that's a real problem. I think when you know the, the idea of 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 not even listening to somebody else but shutting them down before they've before they've talked yeah 
and and the fact that the the reason that you want that somebody may want to do that is that there is a sort of sense of personal violence that that might be that is perceived to being acted on you because somebody is is throwing an opposing viewpoint in, in yeah. your face and i think that 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 is really problematic because again it it comes both it comes down to the resilience but it does come to this the issue of how do you how how do you get to a place where there can be people who have different backgrounds who can who can articulate to each other what their what what their feelings are in a way that doesn't automatically produce this animosity you know replicating itself over over and over yeah, well, I suppose I mean, historically it's just, that that's been education and it's been the workplace. But yeah, time absolutely. goes by, you're not allowed to in fear of getting dismissed. Yeah, I mean it's it's difficult. It's difficult because it's kind of like though you again you you want to accept that there are there are you know um, there are institutional problems that happen on a structural level, but that, um, but there are also kind of day to day you know racisms or or homophobia or sexism that occurs that people who are you know that, that everybody has to endure and again I, I do want to say everybody because it's like it's really easy in here where two two white guys straight white guys who who you know it would be easy to turn around and say well what do you know about yeah about any of that and i said well actually you know i know what pain is i know what being bullied is i know what being ostracized feels like yeah maybe on a structural level, on a, on a sort of societal level, I benefit from certain things or not even benefit, but I don't have to endure like being followed around a shop, let's say, for example, you know what I mean? Or I don't get wolf whistled while I'm walking down the street every five minutes, that kind of thing, you know? And so those things, and those things are, are legitimate and I'm not decrying them all, but I, you know, I and yourself have things that we have gone through you yeah. know that we've had to deal with now I think, sorry go on no no no, no i'm just going to say that, that that if 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 you don't recognize that on some level it's really problematic to say okay here is the here is the enemy hmm. here is the enemy and everything that they represent is is violent or or undermining to my personal position because it, it it creates such an easy kind of black and white dichotomy it's, i am the good person I am the evil. There is the evil person, and therefore I can put compartmentalize everything really easily. And I think that we are at times in danger of of doing that. And again, it's I, I don't want to call it re- reverse racism because it isn't. But you know what I mean? It's it's kind of like at some point we have to ask ourselves: Is it really a war between everyone? I think you know what I mean? Is it? I, I, it, I think in my in my experience, you know, and everything that I've I've been. You know, reading and, and watching over, over the last you know, ten years, basically since I've become politically awake, um, is, is the the value of empathy mm. is has been increasingly diminished in society. The idea that someone who sits on the other side of a of a you know a, a hypothetical fence. Uh, is incapable of understanding how you feel, not only immediately um, 
pushes you away from society and and sits you on your own. And that in turn Mm. creates a systemic problem of a lack of self-worth. It also means that the other side are afraid of actually reaching out and and trying to engage in the conversation. There's one great example um, that my mother was telling me about this week. And she's saying about this this kid who was trying to talk with their mum about I, I can't even remember what it was. It's something really basic and and simple, but the kid was using bad language, and so like the mother would just put her hand up and get her to stop talking because she was using mm-hmm. bad language, and therefore right. didn't didn't actually listen to the problem. And then the mother will turn around and complain to her friends that her daughter never talks to her. Um. But yeah, just to go back to it, it, it's for me at least, it's always been how people value empathy. Mm. It happened with like the Me Too movement immediately. Um, that kind of got that was hijacked. The kind of core foundation of that movement was hijacked, and it became a um, yeah, an anti-male thing. And then a lot of people who are at the core of that movement had to do a lot of fighting to re-engage the male part of society into that conversation because a lot of people isolated them immediately. Where with the Black Lives Matter movement, it almost immediately became a conversation about white privilege. Mm. So it, it's it's this idea that we need finding a way of of not morally hijacking a conversation mm. and using empathy as a driving currency in order to to uphold those conversations and their values. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? Because I think that on some level, you are—we're all—we're always going to be identified with with certain groups, whether we want to be or not, right? So it's like the the, the, the let's say the theoret- the theoretical concept of white masculinity is something that I can I can critique, but mm. yet I still have to inhabit that identity right so it gets to the point okay what I, I've, I've like thought about this quite quite a lot especially when you know we're talking about doing my other podcasts and stuff like that what does it mean to inhabit a positive white straight masculinity and i don't think there is an answer for that at the moment you know what i mean i'm, I'm saying sort of in a in a public space or in a public forum yeah is it just at the moment it seems to be all all you have to do is just be quiet listen, um, you know, offer, offer voices out to, to other people, which I'm, you know, I, I think are all true, but then it comes back to me. Okay. So should, should me and you be talking, me and you really be talking right now? Who wants to listen to us, Dave? Yeah. Probably no one. Probably no Do you know one, what I mean? Yeah. But it's like, it, it, but, but, but then like, you know, I'm working in the universities. It's kind of like, well, <laughs> Is my do I, when I work walk through the door of the university and I stand in front of these these students, then automatically, kind of everything that I say and represent has to be filtered through that lens. I'm sorry, I'm I'm a white straight guy. I'm on everyone's side. Do you know what I mean? It's mm. it's really it's really diff, difficult because I think you, it, working through all of that and yet. You know, and then you talked about empathy there. I think I think it's also about other things like like sympathy and acknowledgement. It's like yeah. you know, I could if somebody says to me, you know, you don't know, you don't know what it's like to have an experience of 
oh, uh, a woman who's going through domestic violence. Very true. You don't know what it's like to, to uh, feel racism of that a black person experiences. Very true. I got the piss taken out of me my entire childhood because of my name. Yeah. Because it doesn't, it wasn't an English sounding name. You know, when I, I, I there, there was, there, there's periods in my, in, in my life where I've, uh, you know, I've had to reconcile certain portions of my identity and felt really aggressive and, and angry about, about that and offended and all these kinds of things. And even now, like, you know, if somebody called me a baldy, I'd just laugh and say, oh, is that, is that the, uh, is that the best you can do? You know, I've heard that a million times. If somebody called me a spick, I'd be ready mm. to go. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? You know what I mean? It's so there yeah. are sort of contexts about where offense lies and what the what the what the intentions of the of those things those things are. So I think it's I I just I um I find it really, really difficult when the generalization of certain groups is pitted against each other because I think it does it does undermine that that possibility of, of conversation. Look, and even for like someone like yourself as a filmmaker. You know, does it get to the point for you sometimes where you think, ah, you know, I, I can't write a female character. I can't write a black character anymore. So you're just going to make films about white people, white men from Ireland? <laughs> yeah. I, I, you know what I mean? It's <laughs> I've, I've grown up in Cornwall uh, in England, which is, you know, very he- heavy uh, naval presence. You know, everybody there is in some way related to the Navy, it seems, because of Calderos, uh naval base. So for me, I experienced a form of racism growing up as soon as I opened my mouth. Mm. When my ex-partner would step outside the door, she would experience racism immediately. Mm. Now, that's not to say, yeah, I don't understand what that's like, Mm. but I do have a part of a making of a bridge here Mm. where I do understand how it can make you feel. Yeah. Um, no, but doesn't everybody, Dave? Though that, like, well, that's kind of the point. Yeah, to be ostracized, to be victimized. In, in everybody can think of a situation where that that happened to them. Yeah, and it's it's and that's the kind of the point I'm getting back to is that okay, I may not fully understand this, but please no. allow me to use empathy here to the yeah. best of my ability. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It will never fulfill exactly what you need. Yeah, but the world never has had and never will have no. exactly what you need. No, um, and I, I think that's something that we need to try at least um, to to utilize in order to bridge some of these really severe gaps. Mm. Um, yeah, and and, and I think you can you can you can do that, and also uh, you know, and also recognize where the where there are sort of fundamental structural inequalities in society. But again, even with that, I think I'm always one for, you know, does that really happen in the way that we think it does because we've watched a YouTube video? Mm. Do you know what I mean? And there can be isolated incidents of anything. And, 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 I, I think I'm always one for, Oh God, that's, that's absolutely horrendous. What that, what that means now is it if you know think of any example of any horrific video that you've you've seen online is that because of race is that because of poverty is that because of uh you know if we're talking about police brutality for example is it poor training um is it 
fear? Is it lack of education? Is it is it patriarchy? Do you know what I mean? There's lots of sort of uh, variables, I think, that have to be taken into account. And, you know, you have to look at, uh, at wider statistics and, and wider evidence. And when it is there, it, it, it should be it should be kind of acted upon. But I think that, you know, I think there is a sort of, there is a tendency to kind of jump into, uh, jump to certain opinions and conclusions that are fed to us in in, in meme form. Yeah, yeah. You know, and again, that's coming back to the sort of issue of the way in which social media and the internet more broadly kind of organizes information, organizes knowledge, and and on the back of that organizes how we can think and understand things. This week's episode of Arnell was produced by S2S Media.